Well, good morning, church. My name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, I want to welcome all of you, especially those of you who are visiting with us today. It is a daunting task to walk into a a new place to worship, and we're just grateful that you're here. We pray that you sense the Spirit of God here today. Uh, uh, We're blessed to have two services at 9 and 1030. People come up to me and they say, what's your favorite service? And I say, the one you go to. So... (laughs) Um, I'm just grateful that you're here today. Hey, we've been uh, looking at uh, some of, uh, this all started with Pastor Joe uh, when he preached a couple weeks ago about radical hospitality. And we've been looking at uh, some passages uh, as we go through the month of August, uh, getting excited, I'm sure. I know you all are, at least I am, about our series in Philemon beginning uh, in September. Uh, but uh, for today, we're going to continue in this series about hospitality And if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke? Luke chapter 14, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, so it's the third book of the New Testament. Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to jump over to verse 7. And uh, as we uh, discern uh, a word that the Lord might have for us today. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, They were watching him carefully. Y'all been there before, haven't you? Jesus was there too. And then uh, jumping now to verse 7. Now, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited them, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is God's holy word. May God open our minds and our hearts to receive that which his spirit will teach us this day. Amen. Many, many years ago, I was invited to a training conference at Virginia Tech. Any any Hokies in the house? There's a few. Y'all know what a Hokie is, right? We'll talk about that later after church service. Well, I was invited to Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia for a diversity training conference. And the president of uh, of Virginia Tech uh, greeted us and welcomed us to the campus. And and he he started the uh, greeting by saying, you know, whenever I bring people here, whenever folks come here, I always like to welcome them with a joke. And the problem is, is that most jokes make fun of, of a particular group of people. The house went quiet. 
this is a diversity training conference, okay? And he said, so I can't really make fun of any people because this is a diversity training conference. But I thought maybe if I would look through history and I could find a group of people that don't exist anymore, then I can tell a joke about those two folks and I won't get in trouble. The house is even quieter at this point. And he says, so here's my joke. There were these two Hittites from West Virginia. (laughs) And the crowd erupted in laughter. I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, West Virginia, Appalachia is the last place on the planet that you can make fun of them and not endure any social consequences. But believe it or not, this is exactly who Jesus was. You have to understand that uh, Jesus grew up in the first century's version of Appalachia. The main city in the region of Galilee, which is this backwater, unsophisticated portion of the country, was named Nazareth. It was so backwards that you could quite legitimately say that Jesus would have been viewed by everybody else as a redneck from Nazareth. Even when Jesus began his ministry, a couple of his first disciples, this is recorded in John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46. This is the Bible. This isn't me. Two guys named Nathaniel and Philip. Philip sees Jesus, and he runs to Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to Philip, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's right there in the Bible. I didn't make that up. You see, our lesson today is a really interesting scene that sometimes we can miss. You see, Jesus is in the sophisticated city of Jerusalem where he has been invited to a dinner party that is being hosted by one of the leaders of the Pharisees, a prominent religious leader of the time. Now, here's the thing. As Jesus walks into this dinner party... He is not impressed. Now, you have to understand that in ancient Israel, dinner parties were literally the currency of the time. You proved your worth by hosting dinner parties. And if you were invited to the best parties, you did everything you could to get the best seat in the house, the seat of highest honor, which was typically the seat closest to the host. You see, there was a protocol that would happen. There was a strict protocol of the ancient world that if you were invited to a dinner party, that you would be looking around and seeing who was there. And then in a couple of weeks, you would offer a dinner party, and you would make sure that everybody who had been invited to that dinner party got invited to your dinner party. And if you could at all make it happen, the host of the dinner party you had been invited to would sit in the seat of highest honor at your dinner party. It was, we don't have that kind of stuff happen anymore, do we? But it was maddening to keep up with this. But the truth is, is if you could play this social construction properly, you could not only propel yourself to positions of prominence and prestige, but you could actually increase your bank account. This was the currency of the ancient world. Now, dinner parties of the ancient world are are pretty big deals. The Bible actually uses the dinner party uh, image significantly, particularly in the New Testament. 
from here in Luke chapter 14 all the way into 1 Corinthians when Paul talks about another dinner party that all who are in Christ are invited to, the Lord's table, Holy Communion, the Eucharist. The New Testament is filled with teachings about what dinner parties could look like and what they should look like in the kingdom of God and how that's different than the kingdoms of the world. I think this is hilarious, actually, this setting here. I mean, now, I might offend some of you when I do this, and and some folks have even said to me, no one's going to get it, so let's see if you guys get it. I mean, you got this redneck from Nazareth in the big city of Jerusalem, and he's been invited to this dinner party, he doesn't like what he sees, and so he gets up and he says something along these lines. Y'all need to take the lesser seat in the kingdom because you ain't going to do anything. You're you going to be embarrassed when the host comes over to you and tells you that you need to give up your seat to your betters. You can imagine how those folks at that sophisticated party in Jerusalem would have thought listening to this redneck from Nazareth with his twang telling them how they ought to do a dinner party. This would have caused conversations among the elite for weeks. Now, throughout my ministry, folks have come up to me and they've said, Pastor Ike, what is the root of every sin? And I normally want to say, I don't know, what's your sin? Because that's what folks are really asking, isn't it? For some of us, it might be lust. For some, it might be greed. For others, it might be jealousy. As a matter of fact, if you were a part of a Sunday school class when you were a kid, you probably had a sweet, dear Sunday school, uh, little old lady Sunday school teacher come up to you and teach you the seven deadly sins. Can any of them, can can you quote them? No, that's all right. I won't put you on the spot. Lust, gluttony, greed, laziness, wrath, envy, and pride. That's the seven deadly sins deadly sins or so we're told by the church they all have biblical mandates in them but they're not put together in one pack in one passage or in one text except for this verse in proverbs you might want to write this down proverbs chapter 6 verses 17 through 19 you can go back and read it a little bit later because in proverbs 6 beginning in verse 17 the text begins there are six things that god hates now, i don't know about you but when i see a line that says here's something god hates I'm going to pay attention to it. The next phrase in the verse says, seven things that are an abomination to God. And then they're listed. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among others. I don't know about you, but I think most politicians and pretty much every news media network is in trouble. (laughs) Now, the thing that really bothers me about these lists, about this kind of list is, well, first of all, it's not really a list. It's not an actual list, but that's how we read them. We, We read them as a checklist and we say to ourselves, well, if I don't do those things, then I'm good with God. And We might even have a list over on the other side of the paper that says, if I do these things, then I'm okay with God. And that's not biblical. That's not how the New Testament understands our relationship with God. That's not how you and I are made acceptable to God, as if we could earn our way into God's heart. Does God love a holy life? Of course. I'm not saying that God doesn't love a holy life. He wants us to live lives that are holy and acceptable to him. 
But it's not our holiness that earns us a place in the kingdom of heaven. It's Jesus Christ that has done that. It is Christ who has provided us the weight of God. Now, I've spent probably a little bit longer time than I should have doing the introduction of this sermon. Folks, what, introduction? You mean we're not even halfway through? <laughs> well, the second part is not quite as long. Because really, I, I, well, I'm not, I don't know why you came to church today. Some of you might have come to church today because you're looking for some word that's going to make you a better person. And if that's you, here it is. Be humble. Okay, now you, if, I don't want you to go, but you can just check out, go to your phone. But I need to tell you this, that's not why I came to church today. If you want to know how, how to be a better person, y'all can go to some self-help conference in downtown Denver. That's going to give you more information. The reason I've come to church today is to tell you about a redneck from Nazareth. The reason I've come to church today is to tell you about Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 5. Paul, this is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in the city of Philippi. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now here we go, buckle up. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus took the form of a servant. Jesus took the form of a servant. Now, there are two words in the Greek New Testament that are translated servant in the English. The first word is the Greek word doulos, and the second word is diakonia. Now, we get the word deacon from diakonia, one of the offices of the church. It literally means servant, but it really carries more of a meaning of a voluntary servant. It's sort of like you know, if, if you're walking into a building and you see somebody behind you and you hold the door for them, you're, you're serving them. Or, or if you see somebody drop some books or some papers or something and you stop and you help them pick that stuff up, you're serving them. It's really the kind of service that we think of when we think about hospitality, which has been some of the things that we've been focusing on the last couple of, these last couple of weeks. And it's something that's typically done free, freely. There, there's no charge for this. You don't help somebody pick up their books and then say that'll be $5. It's, it's, not, it's not something uh, that we do uh, necessarily for any expectation of something. But if somebody were to return the favor, that would be okay. It would be that kind of serving. So if you're walking out the, the worship center and you hold the door and the first set of doors, and then that person returns the favor holding the next set of doors... That would be diakonia. That would be the serving, the service that we're talking about. It is 
uh, a word that, that really conveys sort of a more gentle, voluntary, you desire to be somebody who serves others. The other word that I mentioned is doulos. Doulos is typically translated by the English versions of the Bible, particularly versions like the King James Version, as bond servant. But that's not really what it means. What it really means is slave. Slave. Slaves do not receive pay. Slaves do not have favors returned. And slaves are not appreciated for what they do. Are you ready? When Paul says that Jesus took the form of a servant, he uses the word doulos. That means Jesus became a slave. He gave up the honor due him as king of kings, the second person of the triune Godhead, and Jesus became a slave. Jesus was a slave to the divine will of salvation. Jesus was a slave to the brokenness of humanity. And here's the part that I think might make some of you uncomfortable. Jesus became a slave for you and for me. Now, that may make make you shift a little bit in your seat. And And if it does, I understand why, because it does me too. But the truth is, if you think about it, we couldn't pay Jesus back if we wanted to, could we? What favor are we going to return to Jesus for all that he's done for us? As a matter of fact, if we look around the world, we can probably see that there's a lot of folks, not just the they's, but maybe even the we's, who don't even appreciate what Jesus did, have no concept, just so, simply just, just don't care. Now, those of you who have kids know what I'm talking about. I mean, my wife and I, Shauna, and we, we, we talk about this all the time. I mean, our children don't know what it's like to live a life where there's no remote for the television. <laughs> they have no clue what it's like not to be able to watch cartoons any day of the week, any hour of the day. You see, there are scholars who say that when the Holy Spirit came upon the world before the resurrection of Jesus, that the presence of that spirit was only for a period of time and for a particular purpose. And then the spirit goes back to God who gave it the books of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. They talk about this all the time. But those same scholars say that after the resurrection of Jesus, when we have come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, when we have been saved, that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells with us permanently. And so the fact is, is that we never live a time when we are not in the presence of Christ. As a matter of fact, the New Testament talks about that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Spirit has come upon the world, and the world has access to God the Father. Now, for some of us who have wandered, some of us who, has, who, who, who have wondered whether or not Jesus is with us, that moment that we were so desperate to know God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ We finally felt his embrace, and we knew our lives were changed forever. And the truth is that with Christ present with us all the time, sometimes we can just take that for granted. We can take for granted the blessings of his presence, the power of his grace and mercy. 
Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. John writes in John 15, verse 13, No one has greater love than this, you know the verse, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, I, I never thought I'd really, I would, could fully understand what that meant until I got married and had a family. And then suddenly I understood what that meant. Now, one of the greatest quotes from one of the greatest movies is Liam Nelson in Taken. I can see some of you, you've seen that. You remember the scene, the phone call? He's just called the kidnappers of his daughter. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for money, I don't have any. But what I do have is a certain set of skills. Skills that I have learned over a lifetime. Skills that make me a nightmare to people like you. That was pretty good, wasn't it? I just... I had to work. I didn't do so well at the first service. And I could see on every single man's face in this place, you're like, yeah, that'd be me. Mess with my family, that'd be me. But the truth is, if somebody did something horrible to your family, you'd probably say the same thing I would say. Please, let them go and take me instead. That's probably what you'd really say. And you see, sacrifice not revenge, is the truest mark of love. And I think that's one of the reasons why the cross is such a powerful image that drives us to our knees. Because you see, it's on the cross where Jesus is exalted. Every knee will bend and every head will bow, Paul writes. Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, Muhammad, Buddha, Saladin, Richard the Lionheart, Gregory the Great, the Apostle Paul, Peter, Andrew, Alexander Campbell, John Calvin, John Wesley, you and me, we all shall someday bend the knee and bow the head and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here's the thing. It's not out of compulsion. It's not out of some sense of submission that's been forced upon us by a despot king, some king who says, I beat you, now get on your knees and honor me. It's not that. It's because we are confronted with the visage of Christ. It's because we're looking into the countenance, into the face of that redneck from Nazareth who became a slave for our sake, who humbled himself to receive the sentence of death for us, who rose again, who conquered sin and the spirits of darkness by stepping out of the tomb, and who ascended, taking his place at the right hand of God the Father. It is his humility that leads to our exaltation. This is a painting that's called Jesus Mafa. It's actually a series of paintings, and they all have the same name, Jesus Mafa. It's one of 70 paintings that have been made. These paintings were created for missionaries who were going to the northern Cameroon portion of Africa to share the gospel with the Mafa tribe somewhere around the 1970s. Sometimes you might see this called the indigenous Jesus because every scene 
that uh, uh, describes the stories of the Gospels is painted as if the scene is occurring in any typical Mafa village in northern Cameroon with the typical dress and typical traditions of the Mafa people. And so the gospel becomes uh, something not just that happened in a far-off land, but something that happens right where they are every day. When the missionaries first went to this part of Cameroon, zero were Christians. And now, much to, uh, because of these paintings and, and this kind of effort to witness, over 50% of the Mafa people have accepted Christ. And more come each day. This particular scene is one that illustrates the text from Luke that I read to you at the beginning of the service today. When the influential ruler of the village in the red robes there welcomes the poor and the destitute of the village. This is the kind of radical hospitality you and I are called to extend. It's the kind of message that uh, we are given to share. But if I haven't made you angry yet, this message, if I haven't made you uncomfortable, let me do it right now. And I'm stepping on my own toes here, too. You see, here's the problem when we read the stories in the gospel. Is I bet that most of us, when we read this story, we pictured ourselves as the rich rulers celebrating the dinner. If we're honest with ourselves, we're probably the ones who say, you know what, we are people of power, prestige, we're the people of, uh, of means, it's, and, and you know what, I appreciate the word from the Lord that I need to be open and, and extend hospitality to others. And if that's what you thought, I wonder if you have missed the point. <laughs> because you see, the point isn't that we need to be like the rich ruler who welcomes these people. The point here, tempered by Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, is, is that it's not we who are the rulers. It's Jesus who is the host. And if we're anybody in this story, we're the poor. We're the destitute. We're the broken. And so you see, when by the invitation of Jesus Christ, that the world is welcomed to this place at this table for this dinner party. We're just greeting folks like us. <laughs> Poor, destitute, broken, in need of God's love through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus right now is about to celebrate a dinner party. And you folks aren't the sophisticated, we're not the sophisticated folks from Jerusalem. We're the poor. We're the destitute. We're the folks who couldn't come here if we wanted to. But Jesus says, come and sit near me at the head of the table and receive my supper. I give to you as it was given to me. That on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after he had given thanks for it, he gave to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. 
take, eat in remembrance of me. In like manner, when the supper was ended, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks for it, he gave to them, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. And now let